0: have a Bible, please open up to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Election Day is upon us. Tuesday will be an important event in the history of our country. It's hard to know how important. I know that Some people have said that this is the most consequential presidential election ever. I don't know if that's true. It will take time to see if that is the case. But I think we all can feel that things are a bit different right now. My wife was speaking to a friend of hers from Dallas this week, and her friend told my wife that the building where my wife's friend works at in Dallas the week of November 2nd this week, they will have armed guards around the building to protect the building from rioting. I don't think this has ever been done before at this specific building, so I think that it's safe to say that at the minimum our nation is uneasy and maybe a bit more elevated we might say that things are very serious right now in our country and that we could go down a bad direction i'm not sure no one knows we can try to read the tea leaves and figure out what's happening but god god knows his wisdom is infinite and my purpose in this morning is going to be highlighting something that We know for sure something that Christians have believed for a long time. Now, it's important to remember that my job is that of a pastor. Me and Jesse are not politicians. Our job is to not wade into political matters. But we are gospel preachers, and the gospel does have political ramifications. That is totally true. It is important in the Christian life to not separate God's truth from what happens in daily life. God has something to say about everything. So I'm going to pick a a, a statement, a truth that is theologically true and has considerable political ramifications. And the statement that I'm going to to be preaching this morning is central and non-controversial. It is a point that binds all Christians together, and it is a truth that we must remember as we wade into this next season of our country, not knowing what will happen with the affairs of this world, but knowing this, this is what we know, this is the confession that we hold on to. And the confession that is most precious to us, it's the title of this morning's sermon, The Lord Reigns. The Lord Reigns. I get this idea from John Newton. John Newton lived in the 1700s and 1800s. He wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He was an abolitionist. He operated his main goal in life. His life endeavor was to abolish the African slave trade in England that was going on. And he had a profound influence on that. This is what he said. And this is what I want to teach this morning. This is what I want us to hold on to as Christians. There is one political statement which comforts me. It is this. The Lord reigns. God will take care of his own cause. He will extend his kingdom. Men have one thing in view, he has another, and his counsel shall stand. We are not in control of the future, we influence it, but there is a larger story that is happening. And my goal this morning is to draw our attention, not totally away from what's going on, we want to be attuned to what's going on and what's transpiring, But I want to look at something more important than the affairs of November 3rd. I want us to look at a larger story that has transpired in human history over and over again. There's the temptation towards believing and thinking that we are in unique times. And while that is true in some sense, Ecclesiastes says, There is nothing new under the sun. What we are experiencing is the same story that has been going on in human history over and over again. And Psalm 2 tells us that story. Psalm 2 tells us the story, this political battle between the ungodliness of man and the reign and supremacy of our Lord. Psalm 2 breaks down into four sections. Let's go ahead and look together at Psalm 2. If you have an ESV, you you will notice that there's some spaces that the editors of the ESV put specifically in between verses 3 and 4 and in between verses 6 and 7. Do you see those spaces? The editors are rightfully indicating that this psalm has four parts. I'll have four points this morning that conform to these four parts. And this story that Psalm 2 teaches, this story that has played out over and over again in human history, that we're seeing right now, this story begins with this first point, and the first point is this. Mankind is evil. Mankind is evil. Psalm 2, 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This passage in Psalm 2 touches upon a truth that is repeated on every page of Scripture. And that truth is that we in our hearts, our basic natural inclinations are towards wickedness and evil. Mankind is not fundamentally neutral. We don't just need to be persuaded of the truth. Rather, our inclinations are not good nor neutral, but they're bent towards evil. The Bible teaches over and over again in the Old and New Testaments that man's outlook, his inclination, is to go away from God. We see this in the very early chapters of the Bible. Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of man had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil continually. Now in Genesis 6, God is looking upon mankind before he brings the judgment of the flood. And God's interpretation of man is that man's heart, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, what that means is every attitude that man has. God's looking from the perspective of complete knowledge and righteousness. And what he sees in man's heart is that every attitude that man has in his heart is only evil continually. And this does not change as time progresses. There are many things that change in life. Technology develops. Medicine develops. Culture develops. But one thing remains the same. And that is, man's inclination is towards evil. Romans 3, this is Paul writing in the New Testament. None is righteous, no not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, no not one. Some things stay the same. And one truth that is repeated throughout every generation, every period of human history is that you and I and all of us are born in our hearts with inclinations that lead us not to God. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You have to teach a a child to tell the truth. Our inclinations, our fundamental inclinations are towards evil. My beloved seminary, Dallas Theological Seminary, this is their doctrinal statement regarding this idea of of depravity. Every child of Adam, which is all of us, every child of Adam born into the world, excuse me, is born into the world with a nature which not only possesses no spark of divine life, but is essentially and unchangeably bad Apart from divine grace, you and I, rulers of this world, in the past, in the future, and in the present, our nature is one that we are essentially and unchangeably bad, apart from divine grace. We are not neutral, we are not good, we are born with evil inclinations. And this evil manifests itself politically. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Here David, who is the author of this psalm, is bringing together whole nations. He's not looking at individuals here. He's looking at whole nations. And he is saying that these nations revolt against God. And then verse 2. Not just the nations, but their rulers. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It's not just peoples, a conglomerate of a population of a country, it's also their figureheads, their rulers, their leaders. Our depravity is total. Which means that depravity bleeds into all that we do. And if man is engaged in politics, then that means that depravity bleeds into politics too. There's this notion of political depravity, and we see that here. Now, notice at the end of verse 1 how the psalmist interprets this political depravity, he interprets it as vanity. This revolt of the nations and this scheming together of the kings of the earth is vain. It's worthless. It comes to naught. It's like bringing a water gun to a war. No matter what man does, no matter what happens here in this earth, no matter what happens on November 3rd or doesn't happen, No one can thwart the counsel of God. God is untouchable. He is beyond reach. You can't harm him. God reigns supreme over man's wickedness. Now look what these rulers say, verse 3. What is it that these rulers are after? What is their main desire? Let us burst their bonds. This there here is the Lord and his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What the author is saying is that these rulers do not want to be subjugated to God's reign and rule. In other words, what it is that they want is total and absolute freedom. Now, I'm all about freedom. I love this country. Freedom is a wonderful thing. But freedom has limits. Freedom has limits. Our freedom is from the rule of tyrants, not from God. Don't tread on me as a political philosophy has limits. It is evil to take freedom to the ultimate end and say to God, God, I want freedom from you. The wickedness of man in politics manifests itself here in utter and ultimate freedom. Freedom from God himself. We don't want that. That is ungodliness. And God is aware of man's inclinations. This does not happen. Verses 1 through 3 does not take God by surprise. Here I'm segueing into my second point second point is this and this is contrasted with man's wickedness second point is this God is sovereign God is sovereign the Lord knows the Lord knows the ways of man the Lord does not need to watch television to know what is going on God has planned and purposed all things to happen as they do all things happen in accordance with God's will God is always in control. What is God's response to the wickedness of man? Verses 4 through 6. This formulates God's response. The first response that God does is God ridicules the wicked. God sits in heaven. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them, that is, these rulers and nations he holds them in derision now I want you to notice what is God's posture what is God's posture what is he doing here besides laughing what is he doing he's sitting what is he seated on a throne the affairs of man the wickedness of man do not rouse God to get out of his seat God is seated. God is in control. God doesn't have to get out and vote. He is seated on a throne. He is in total control, so much so that the affairs of men do not even rouse him to get out of his seat. From this seat of authority and lordship, what he does is he laughs. Now, this laughing is not a laughing at a joke, this is a mocking. God here is mocking the wicked. He is mocking them in their vanity. He is mocking them in their silly pursuits. The end of verse 4 says, The Lord holds them in derision. The Lord taunts them. That is what this passage is teaching. The Lord is taunting and mocking and laughing at the wicked. Our God is all loving. He is supremely gracious and infinitely merciful and kind. He is also righteous. He is good. And he responds to the wickedness of man with a perfect response. And then in verse 5, he visits them in wrath. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them. God will not sit idly by One day there will be a making of all things right. And this is a supremely good reason to be a Christian. There is more to being a Christian than being rescued from eternal destruction. But it is not less than that. The most flourishing thing you can do as a human is to believe upon Jesus Christ and live with him forever. We do not want to be subject to God's wrath. and God has a political program. Verse 6. As for me, this is here the Lord speaking, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So in verse 4, God laughs at the wicked, and verse 5, God visits the wicked in wrath and retribution. And in verse 6, God speaks of his political program. The Bible is political. God has a political program. And this program centers on a king. Look at verse 6. I have set my king. Now this king is the same figure who is mentioned in verse 2. The hatred of the nations and of the kings of the earth is directed against the Lord... And his anointed. This word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. You can hear the word Messiah in the Hebrew word Mashiach. This figure who the Lord God is appointing in Psalm 2 is anointed. And he is a king. God has a political program. And God's political program is to set and establish a king. Now this king here, the anointed one, David, King David was both anointed and he was a king. You think of 2 Samuel, where Samuel finds David and anoints him as king. And then David rises to the level of king, and God gives a promise to David that there will be this Davidic king. This Davidic kingdom starts with David. It goes through his lineage. And it finds its climax. In the Messiah. The Messiah is identified in the New Testament. As Jesus Christ. What is being spoken of. And foretold here in verse 6. Ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. God's political program. Goes to the the Davidic king. And the Davidic king is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're introduced to him in verse 6. And then, verses 7 through 9, Jesus talks to us in this psalm. This is my third point. The third point is this Jesus is king. David tells us here we get to listen into a conversation in verses 7-9 through nine, a conversation that Jesus has with his father who the Lord has with the Davidic king the Davidic king here tells us what that conversation is I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What's going on here is Jesus is retelling us this conversation the Father had with him. This conversation is in eternity past. This is a conversation that happened prior to the beginnings of the world, but is revealed for us here. And what Jesus is saying in light of the New Testament, so we want to understand Psalm 2, Not as a Jew, but as a Christian. We want to bring in what the New Testament teaches about who Jesus is. What Jesus is referring to here, this begotten and this inheritance that Jesus receives, he's referring to the inheriting of the full rights that come with the Davidic kingdom. In the Old Testament, there are these promises given to the Davidic king that he will inherit the nations. When does Jesus inherit this? When does Jesus inherit this? We went over this in Philippians 2. Listen to this. This is from Philippians. And being found in human form, this is Jesus talking. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death to the point of death on a cross. Therefore God, think Yahweh, Think the Lord here in this passage. Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. That is the fulfillment of what Psalm 2 is speaking of. Whenever Yahweh says to the Davidic king, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. What is being referred to here is the exaltation of the Son of God after his resurrection. Think Matthew 28. Before Jesus sends the disciples out, what does he say to them? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. This political program that God has with the Davidic king was instituted and given to Jesus upon his resurrection of the dead. That's where all of this finds its fulfillment. And now Jesus is the king on earth. And as the king on earth, he rightfully executes what it is that the Lord has. For the wicked. Verse 9. What shall the Son of God do? How shall the Son of God reign supreme in the earth? He shall break the nations with a rod of iron. And dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What we see the Davidic king doing in verse 9. Is what Yahweh Did in verse 5 There's a connection between What the Lord does And what his anointed does The Lord will speak to the nations And the evil rulers In his wrath And he will terrify them In his fury So also his son The Davidic king Will break the nations With a rod of iron And dash them in pieces Like a potter's vessel have you ever broken a clay pot, pot, excuse me, have you ever broken a clay pot before? Shattered it. It is impossible to put back together. What Jesus will do when he returns? He will judge the wicked. He will faithfully execute righteousness in this earth. He will respond to those who have engaged in political depravity. He will respond to them with wrath and judgment. And that wrath and judgment is captured here with a picture of shattering a pot, dashing it to pieces. It will be a total and complete judgment. This is the Lord's political program. Now, there's application here. This has all been teaching and instruction and doctrine, retelling the story. Now, how do we live in light of it? What do we do? The psalmist captures this in verses 10 through 12. And put it simply, this is kind of a meat and potatoes type of sermon. This is the fourth point honor Jesus. Honor Jesus. Verse 10. David. Highlights the application towards rulers and kings. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. So the application is specific to them. So I'd like to start with with that. Start with political rulers and people in power. What is... In this passage is, Is the idea that with great power Comes great responsibility With great power comes great responsibility The reason why God's judgment here is so fierce Is because these people have been entrusted with such power And they have abused and distorted that power Against the Lord and against his anointed With great power Comes great responsibility If you are engaged in politics If you are in any way A king Or a ruler of the earth This is a political town We have people like this in our congregation The exhortation for you is to Be wise Be warned Your position While prestigious Comes with responsibilities And the way you handle your affairs towards people matters to God. The way you treat others ought to be in light of humility and grace. No political maneuvering or ungodly ambition. Notice verse 12. Kiss the sun. What's that mean? I want us to envision this idea as a king who has a ring. And the way you show homage, the way you show honor to a king in the ancient world, maybe even today, is that you kiss the king's ring. You pay homage to him. Same idea. Honor the sun in your political dealings as you seek to be faithful in what it is that God has entrusted you with. Honor the sun kiss him. And your attitudes and actions. What will drive you away from kissing the sun? What leads you away from that is your pride. Is your belief that the world needs you. Is your belief that the gifts and talents that you have are of your own doing. That will lead you away from the sun. That will lead you to a posture that is highlighted in Psalm 2, 1 through 3. We do not want freedom from our Lord. We want to be subject to Him. And we want to consistently, repeatedly model that posture through humility and service to others. If you rule, if you administer, if you are a government leader... Do not seek to have a godlike status. Do not adopt your own agendas. Kiss the sun. Know that with your position of power comes tremendous responsibility. And God will hold us accountable. God will hold us accountable how we execute our offices. Now, for the rest of us. For those who do not have government positions. We too, like government rulers, have an obligation towards kissing the sun, Towards paying homage to him. Towards being wise. Towards being warned. Towards serving the Lord with fear. Rejoicing with trembling. We have those obligations. And I think in this political season, the, the, the first way that we do this The first way that we honor the Son is by voting according to Christian principles. I will leave it at that. My concern here for this congregation is not voting. My concerns are elsewhere. What I'd like to do in these last couple of minutes is hone in on attitudes during this time. Hone in on postures. In the Christian life, Especially in a season like the one that we're in, there is a temptation towards being too fixated on the affairs of this world. In this political season, there is a temptation towards being too fixated on the affairs of this world and what's going on. I feel this. There's this temptation. And kind of let me give you some clues as to indicators which hint that your focus is in the wrong place. Your focus is in the wrong place if in the last week you haven't picked up your Bible and read it and studied it. Yet Fox News has been on every day. Now, God bless Fox News. I have nothing against Fox News. I'm making no statement on Fox News. My concerns, though, is that we're too fixated on this constant media cycle and that we neglect our Lord God. We forget some too at the expense of what is going on. Maybe you've had many discussions with your friends and family members. About these riots, about the election, about the pandemic, about face masks, and all of these things going on. And yet, you have not witnessed to anyone in a long time. Our focus there is skewed. What matters most, what will remain forever, is not our current circumstances. What will remain forever is the idea that the Lord will reign. And our posture and attention and focus in all of life must be on that. That matters. That will endure. Let's take giving. Let's say you've given to a political cause. That's fine. You haven't given to the work of the ministry in a long time. Those types of attitudes are skewed. Let me be very clear. I'm not saying don't be politically engaged. Listen to me very clearly. I'm not saying politics don't matter. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't be informed. I'm not saying don't be discerning. I'm not saying that. The point that I'm making is a matter of emphasis. What is the emphasis in your life right now? Is it the Lord God and His eternal purposes? Are you kingdom-minded right now? Or are your thoughts and feelings and attitudes in an area where they shouldn't be? The Lord reigns and His purposes on this earth, your obedience to Him, your focus on His purposes in this world, and your obedience to those purposes far exceed being focused on the here and now. I want us to draw our attention away from the here and now to this larger narrative, to this more important narrative, I do not want to underemphasize the here and now but I want to draw our attention to heaven to the Lord and maybe at this time in our nation's history our future the trajectory is in a precarious place maybe that is the case maybe a turn towards communism is around the corner Maybe. I don't know. You don't know. Maybe that is the case. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. What ultimately matters, the truth that will stand forever and ever and ever, is the reign of the Lord. There is nothing new under the sun God has a plan. God has a will. God uses us to accomplish that will. You should be politically involved. But never ever think for one second that you're in control of what happens. It's up to God. God reigns supreme. He reigns forever and ever and ever. And your main responsibility is to honor Him. Your main responsibility is to kiss the sun. Your main responsibility is to be focused on the things of heaven and to not allow your attention to be drawn so much to the affairs of this world that you forget the larger story, that you forget the fact that the Lord reigns. to end this morning from Psalm 146, three through five. Do not put your trust in princes. Do not put your trust in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Father, we thank you for your kind word. We thank you that we know that you are in control. And regardless of what happens this coming week, Father, we know that your purposes will stand. And our posture ought not to be one of anxiety and worry. Lord, lead lead our focus and our attention away from The here and now, lead us to be involved in discerning, but, Father, reorient our focus. Give us comfort from the idea that the Lord reigns. I pray that we would faithfully execute our office of citizenship, but, Father, we would hold the truths of Scripture as more precious and more important what it is that's going on around us thank you for your grace for your reign for the kingship and lordship of your son we pray that we would kiss him so that we might find refuge in him father thank you for jesus in his name i pray